Reveal is brought to you by Progressive, where customers who save by switching their home and car save nearly $800 on average. Quote at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $793 by new customers surveyed who save with Progressive between June 2021 and May 2022. Potential savings will vary. From the Center for Investigative Reporting and PRX, this is Reveal. I'm Ike Sris Kandaraja, in for Al Letson. Today, we're featuring three investigative stories from across the country that touch on issues of power. Who has it and how do they wield it? Let's begin in Washington, D.C., where we teamed up with public radio station WAMU. It's April of 2021, and a group of Russian-speaking hackers, they call themselves Babuk, claim to have pulled off what would be considered one of the biggest cyber heists of a police department ever. Babuk says it hacked Washington, D.C.'s Metropolitan Police Department, or MPD. Claiming to have a whopping 250 gigabytes of intelligence and confidential MPD files... Acting Chief Robert Conti said the attack was over. We have identified what occurred and blocked the mechanism that allowed the unauthorized access. MPD closes the security hole, but the real trouble is about to begin. Babook says they're not a terrorist or activist group. They hacked the D.C. police for the same reason they hacked the Houston Rockets. They did it for the money. Babook Locker Ransomware uses the double extortion model. This means they encrypt the data and threaten to expose it if a ransom is not paid. We think maybe it could be the next ransomware superstar. I think that the term ransomware at this point is misleading because it's not one piece of software. It's more of a business model. This is Lorax Horn a journalist with a side gig that sometimes involves tracking ransomware groups on the dark web. That's the part of the internet you can't Google. And that business model of holding data hostage? There's been a push in recent years where they'll publish the data. If the companies don't pay the ransom. And in the case of the D.C. police, Babook even publishes chats of their negotiation. Hello. Do you have any questions? We don't want anyone to get hurt. What were they asking for? Four million, according to the chat log. Tell me how you decided four million for this? It seems extremely high for a public sector entity. And the police department offered, I think, a hundred thousand. If this offer is not acceptable, then it seems our conversation is complete. Does that seem like a lowball to you? Yeah, it's really hard to say. It's a question of how embarrassing is this going to be for them. I think we both understand the consequences of not reaching an agreement. We are okay with that outcome. And I guess they decided that it was not that embarrassing for them. This is unacceptable from our side. Follow our website at midnight. Babook followed through on their threat and published all 250 gigabytes of data. And this is where Lorax's side gig comes in. They're a volunteer for an organization called Distributed Denial of Secrets, DDoS Secrets for short. We're a website, 
d.secrets.com. And we publish data coming from hacks and leaks that we believe is going to be useful for investigative journalism, for academic research. So if somebody hears this and they're like, oh, I like secrets, I open up the website and they'll see the list of leaks. Yeah, so the most recent data set that we put out is PetroWorks, a company that contracts with a lot of oil companies, hmm. oath keepers, emails, chat logs, membership and donor lists from the militia, hmm. uh, also Metropolitan Police Department. And is there a through line to all these hacks and leaks? And That's the through line. <laughs> that they are hacked or leaked is really the only commonality. Is it an uncomfortable position to be in to work with people who are blackmailing companies? I don't think that we do. It's published already and someone's going to have it. The difference is whether that data is then available to journalists and researchers or if it's just available to bad actors. That's how I see our work. In late April, the ransomware group published messages saying that they had hit MPD. And then in early May, we published our announcement that we had successfully retrieved the data and that we could make it available to researchers. And journalists, like my colleague Dhruv Marotra. I am a data reporter for Reveal. I use computers to investigate computers and sometimes to investigate the police. Dhruv downloads tens of thousands of MPD files from the DDoS secret site. And these are files the public never gets to see. Police departments are very, very secretive and tight-lipped about a lot of their data. And these files give Dhruv a rare look into why it's so difficult to hold cops who do bad things accountable. It turns out buried in all of the administrative detail was pretty revelatory information about the misconduct of officers at uh, the D.C. police. I saw folders for every year going back to 2004, and within each year was a folder for any officer who went through the disciplinary process. This is like 15 years of police officers who had been doing something wrong and were being investigated or punished. Yes. What do you do next? Honestly, I clicked uh, a random one. <laughs> I don't think there was any rhyme or reason. I just wanted to see what I saw. And frankly, the first one I saw was just so shocking that I knew I had something. It was a file for a sergeant who was initially suspended without pay after he allegedly threatened to kill his wife and daughters, as well as other officers within the D.C. Police Department. Something that really stuck out to me in his file is that one of the victims told the interviewer that the officer said it would be, quote, very easy to get rid of a body by throwing them in with the pigs because the pigs will eat bones and everything. What? This is somebody who works for the Metropolitan Police Department? He eventually got fired, but he worked there until 2020. And the general public, D.C. metro area, nobody knew this before this leak happened? 
no, these are internal investigations. No one knew about this. So that guy who wants to feed human bones to pigs, he's no longer on the force anymore. That's right. But I'm left wondering, are there police officers on the force who shouldn't be? Right. And I think that's the question that we really wanted to try to answer. Eventually, what we found was that about 70 different police officers, and remember, these are current officers, were investigated for, quote, criminal or quasi-criminal misconduct, which are terms that are used in MPD's handbook. Is that like unpaid parking tickets can be criminal? They're talking about felonies. Um, An officer drove onto the median of a highway and killed someone who was mowing the lawn. Officer allegedly had indecently exposed himself in the parking lot of a grocery store. Another officer was arrested for stalking. These sound bad. Yeah, it's, it's, not, it's not good. Um, internal Affairs found that one officer had assaulted two women outside of a Hooters. And there was another officer who punched his wife so hard that she fractured a bone around her eye socket, according to a medical report. Just to be clear, these are all people who, who got to keep their jobs. Yeah, they not only were investigated, but Internal Affairs substantiated the criminal allegations and they all are still on the force. In many of these cases, they actually wanted to fire these officers, Hmm. but they ended up not being fired. Driv, is there a case that demonstrates why these officers were allowed to stay on the force? So I think the case of Ronald Fontroy best illustrates what we're trying to get at here. So on December 13th in 2015, Officer Fontroy requested the last four hours of his shift off of work so that he could be with his family. But a few hours after that, surveillance video catches him circling around a block in D.C. that's well known for prostitution. And in that video, he backs into an alleyway and then flashes his headlights four or five times to signal to the sex worker that he's interested. The sex worker eventually approaches Fontroy's window, and according to an interview that she then gave to Internal Affairs later that day, she says that he offered her $30 for oral sex. She declined that offer, and he drove off. Ten minutes later, the video shows that Fontroy drove back up, facing the wrong direction on the street, and cuts her off. He then gets out of his car, and according to that interview the sex worker gave, Fontroy gets out, points his MPD service weapon directly at her and accuses her of stealing his phone. When you say it's his service weapon, that's his, the gun he uses on the job. Yeah, it's a, it's a Glock. So according to the interview that she gave to Internal Affairs, the sex worker says that she was just incredibly frightened. You know, she thought that she was going to be shot. And, you know, her and Fontroy are yelling. And that actually gets the attention of another sex worker who's her friend who then comes over to de-escalate the situation. And according to that interview, the one between the friend and Internal Affairs, she told Fontroy, you know, look, man, give me your phone number. I'll call your phone. My friend over here, she doesn't steal. She doesn't have your phone. So she calls Officer Fontroy's phone number, and it turns out that it's in the backseat of his car. So she actually reaches back into his car, picks it up for him, and says, look, Here's your phone. You can't be pointing your weapon like that at my friend, so I'm going to actually call the police. 
Officers respond on the scene, and by that time, Fontroy is long gone. The friend had the foresight to take down his plates. They ran the plates through, you know, their databases, and they found that it belonged to Officer Fontroy. And that's when the officer on the scene called Internal Affairs. An investigation begins. Yeah. The agent in charge of this investigation is someone named Charles Weeks. At the time, he had been with the force for 20 years, tasked with essentially investigating officers for misconduct. He pulled surveillance video. He interviewed both of the victims, you know, the sex worker and her friend. I would imagine at some point the investigator has to ask the officer about it. Yeah, so eventually Internal Affairs interviews Fontroy. And in that two-hour interview, Fontroy refuses to answer the most basic questions in any kind of straightforward way. He's constantly contradicting himself. Um, He says he has no recollection of flashing his lights four or five times to signal to the sex worker, even though there's surveillance video that shows him doing exactly that. And at a certain point, Detective Weeks is just fed up. And then he sort of proceeds to walk through what he knows about Fontroy's whereabouts minute to minute. And by the end of that, Fontroy says, look, you put the pieces together. And Internal Affairs then writes up a report that concludes that Fontroy actually confessed. He confessed to soliciting prostitution, to pointing his weapon at a sex worker. Wow. So this is an officer who was caught, investigated, confessed, and still has his job? How is that possible? Yeah, and that's, you know, exactly what we wanted to figure out. So Agent Weeks at Internal Affairs wrote up his report and sent it off to the Disciplinary Review Division. And even the Disciplinary Review Division said, look, we agree with the findings and Ronald Fontroy should be fired. But he wasn't fired. And the reason, it turns out, is because of something called an adverse action panel. What is an adverse action panel? An adverse action panel is a rotating panel of three high-ranking officers who will listen to the facts of a case in this sort of courtroom-like administrative proceeding, and then they'll come up with an amended disciplinary recommendation. So instead of judges, these officers face a tribunal of their fellow officers? Exactly. And oftentimes, the officers know or have worked with members of the panel from the people I've spoken to, personal history can kind of influence the panel's decisions. And what do we know about their review of this particular appeal? Well, we know that Robert Conti, the current chief of police for the D.C. Police Department, was the chairman of this panel. And we know that during the panel's proceedings, Fontroy, represented by his lawyer, basically took back his confession and said he was innocent of all charges. And we ultimately know that the panel decided that instead of firing Fontroy, he would actually be suspended for 45 days. So how does the panel explain themselves? Is that in the documents at all? So the panel found that Fontroy was, in fact, soliciting prostitution, and they found that he did lie about it. But when it comes to the threatening of a sex worker with his weapon and then accusing her of stealing his phone... They actually thought that that was a legitimate police stop, and they cited him for not filing the proper paperwork for a police stop. (laughs) You can pull your gun on somebody because you left your phone in the back seat? Yeah, that's essentially what the 
panel concluded. How many officers did you find, like Officer Fauntroy, where police departments try to fire them, but this panel vetoes it? We found 21 cases like Fauntroy's. Uh, These are cases where internal affairs sustained allegations of criminal or quasi-criminal misconduct, and the department wanted to fire these officers, but an adverse action panel overturned those firings and instead handed out suspensions or acquittals. All of the cases I had mentioned earlier were officers who the panel decided to suspend or to acquit. Oh, the officers who assaulted their wives and punched women at Hooters, those are part of this number who got to keep their jobs? Yes. And the thing that's keeping those officers on the job seems to have a lot to do with this panel. It does. And is this unique to the D.C. police or is this how police departments operate? Do you have any sense of how widespread this is? You know, I don't. And I think it took a hack of a large police department for us to even figure out that this kind of issue in the disciplinary process exists. That was Revealed Data reporter Dhruv Marotra. The police chief, Robert Conti, who helped make sure that Officer Fonteroy got to keep his job, he wouldn't talk to us. And neither would anyone else at the police department. But after Dhruv and our partners at WAMU first published this story... So that is our briefing... At a press conference. And um, I'm happy to answer your questions. A reporter asked D.C.'s Mayor Muriel Bowser about the cops who couldn't be fired and the role the chief played. Did you know about this when you promoted him to chief? And, I mean, are you comfortable with these officers having a badge and gun and full police powers out on the streets? If, uh, if they were recommended by the chief of police for termination, then that is what I think should have happened. Since Reveal first published its investigation, MPD has started to release schedules of adverse action panels to the public. And the Washington Post editorial board called on the Police Reform Commission to, quote, examine how discipline is dispensed and ensure that officers who shouldn't be on the streets aren't allowed to stay on duty. When we come back, we continue our look at local investigations that have had a big impact. We'll go to Aurora, Colorado, where paramedics used powerful drugs to sedate people during incidents involving police. There were situations where police arrived on scene before us and they were saying that the patient needed ketamine or they needed sedation. Police claimed suspects had excited delirium. But is that really a thing? That's next on Reveal. Support for Reveal comes from Odoo. If you feel like you're wasting time and money with your current business software or just want to know what you could be missing, then you need to join the millions of other users who switched to Odoo. Odoo is the affordable, all-in-one management software with a library of fully integrated business applications that help you get more done in less time for a fraction of the price. To learn more, visit odoo.com slash reveal. That's O-D-O-O dot com slash reveal. Odoo, modern management made simple. 
It's a high-stakes election year, so it's not enough to just follow along. You need to understand what's happening so you are fully informed come November. Every weekday on the NPR Politics Podcast, our political reporters break down important stories and backstories from the campaign trail so you understand why it matters to you. Listen to the NPR Politics Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. From the Center for Investigative Reporting and PRX, this is Reveal. I'm Ike Sriskandaraja, in for Al Letson. There's a pattern that's become familiar. It's one where police officers do something wrong, and then afterwards, nothing really changes. We heard that story in the last segment. But in this next story, we're going to take you to Aurora, Colorado, where there was a different outcome. If you know anything about the Aurora Police Department, it's probably because of Elijah McClain. Elijah McClain was a 23-year-old black man, a musician, and massage therapist. He was a skinny guy, and his friends described him as shy. And in 2019, he was stopped by Aurora police while he was walking home from a convenience store. The officers wrestled him to the ground, put him in a chokehold, and held him down as he said, I can't breathe. Then Elijah was injected with a powerful sedative, ketamine. On the way to the hospital, he went into cardiac arrest. Three days later, Elijah died. It wasn't the officers who gave him ketamine. Cops just can't use drugs to control people. It was the paramedics, for what they said were medical reasons. Reporters Michael DeYoana and Ray Solomon at KUNC Public Radio were covering the case, and they wanted to know who else this was happening to and why. What they found led to real change. We'll tell you about that after we play their story, originally broadcast in 2020. Michael begins with another Elijah, a man by the name of Elijah McKnight. I meet Elijah McKnight in the lobby of his apartment building in Denver. Because of the coronavirus, we bump elbows and then sit at opposite ends of a couch. He's in his mid-twenties, tall and wearing a baseball hat and t-shirt. He's multiracial and identifies as black. And he tells me about a night several years ago. So I was at work. I just started working at this barbershop. He cuts hair, and after his shift, one of his clients invited him to hang out. He was like, let's go to a bar. Chill. We actually hit a couple or a few bars downtown. It was August 20th, 2019, and it turned out to be an epic night of drinking. The partying eventually wound down, but on the ride home, Elijah's buddy pulled over. On, on the way home, he was saying he didn't want to take me all the way. It was kind of out the way. I was like, all right. So I told him to just stop the car and let me out because it kind of made me mad. Like, you can't take me <laughs> up the street, okay? Stop the car. I'll get out. Looking back on it, he says it wasn't his best decision. He thought maybe he could catch a bus. Stumbled to the bus stop because I, I didn't realize I was that drunk until I got out the car. And I was like, oh, I got to sit down. Actually, he laid down on his backpack. Now I guess I passed out, cold, fell asleep, and uh, got woke up by the police. They woke me up. I'm just going to just, just sit right here, okay, because I don't want you to fall over. Two deputies with the Arapahoe County Sheriff's Office help him stand up. They're responding to a citizen's call to 911. 
This audio comes from their body cameras. Oh, we're not in trouble right now, man. We just want to make sure you're okay. Officers repeatedly ask him to sit down, but he doesn't do it. Elijah is standing, swaying back and forth. His speech is slurred. How much have you had a drink? Yeah. Elijah mumbles. He asks the deputies to help him by calling his dad. Let's, let's start with this. Can you sit down and give me an ID and then we'll figure out nah, where you live? Yeah, not because that leads to the warrants. He tells the deputies that there are warrants out for him. I don't want you to arrest me. Please don't arrest me. Please don't arrest me. This is where things get out of control. And a warning that the next minute or so of the story can be disturbing to listen to. What's your name, Eliza? Elijah. Eliza. Elijah. 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 About eight minutes in, a deputy reaches for Elijah's arm. And as he does, Elijah turns and tries to run. Within seconds, and just a few feet from where he started, Elijah is on the ground, on his back, looking up at the deputies. You're going to get tased. Do you understand me? Turn around, get on your stomach now. You're going to get tased. Turn around. Get on your stomach now. Put your hands behind your back now. Stop, stop, please. 71 taser deployed. Please stop. Put your hands behind your back now. You will get tased again. Do you understand? Yes. Stop, please. Do not move again. I will not move again. I will not move again. I will not move again. Deputies handcuff him, but they don't arrest him. They don't put him in the back of their cruiser. They don't take him to jail. Rescue's here to talk to you. Are you going to cooperate with them? Paramedics from South Metro Fire Rescue arrive. And a few minutes after that, you can't see who's talking. But it's clear that sheriff's deputies ask the paramedics whether they can give Elijah drugs. You guys can't give him anything, can you? Unless he goes. Unless he goes. Yeah, we, we, we can give him ketamine and he'll be sleeping like a baby, but we'll have to go. Don't give me, don't, is there anything in the mother? Over Elijah's protests not to have anything put into his veins, a paramedic sedates him. And this is what my reporting partner, Ray Solomon, and I want to focus on. Exactly. We want to know how paramedics can give Elijah drugs even after he just told them not to. We found out that paramedics said Elijah was suffering from something called excited delirium. That's a medical term some ER doctors use for what they claim is a rare, life-threatening medical emergency, where a patient is completely out of control and shows extreme agitation, overheating, combativeness, and exceptional strength. At this time in Colorado, if paramedics diagnosed someone with excited delirium, they were allowed to sedate them. And the drug of choice was ketamine. But was excited delirium what was going on with Elijah? We reached out to South Metro Fire Rescue and the Arapahoe County Sheriff's Office. Neither would talk to us. So we turned to Joseph Baker, a critical care paramedic in Minnesota. He filed a lawsuit against his former employer, the city of Woodbury, claiming he faced retaliation for refusing a police officer's order to sedate someone. There was more than one occasion where uh, dispatch updated us prior to our arrival, where They said that police were asking to either get ketamine ready or police were saying that the patient was going to need ketamine. Joseph says police would sometimes pressure him to inject ketamine even when he thought it wasn't medically necessary. 
He says some officers have a mindset that seditions are an easy way to control people who are being difficult or disagreeable. There were situations where police arrived on scene before us and they were saying that the patient needed ketamine or they needed sedation. And we could develop a rapport and a running dialogue where it wasn't necessary. The situation could be de-escalated. Sedating a person isn't something to take lightly. People have different reactions to the drug. In Elijah McKnight's case, that reaction was bad. I was, I was out cold. Several doctors told me they saved my life and that I was like pretty much dead. Paramedics gave Elijah two doses of ketamine. To calculate those doses, they needed to guess Elijah's weight. According to their own records, paramedics got it wrong, overestimating his weight by more than 100 pounds. At the hospital, Elijah was intubated and put on a ventilator that breathed for him. My memory, it went from being pinned down like that to then pulling a tube out my throat. Elijah's experience isn't unique. We looked at excited delirium cases throughout Colorado, and we found that almost 17% of the time, patients developed complications before they even got to the hospital. And once people got to the hospital, they were intubated 20% of the time. High complication rates make some doctors worry about this. The information that we've gotten is that it's probably not a safe practice. Mary Dale Peterson is president of the American Society of Anesthesiologists. Ketamine is actually a general anesthetic. That's a powerful drug. Depending on the dosage, it has different properties on the brain. As that dosage escalates, we will see more problems. Problems like we're seeing in Colorado. Problems like hypoxia, where someone suffers from low oxygen levels. Problems like significant increases in blood pressure. And most serious... It can cause people to stop breathing. With excited delirium, Dr. Peterson worries that paramedics may be sedating people for the wrong reasons. Ketamine or any other drug should never be given for law enforcement purposes. We only give drugs or medications for medical reasons. We reached out to another doctor who raised even more questions. Paul Applebaum of the American Psychiatric Association helps write the DSM, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, basically the accepted dictionary of psychiatric diagnoses. As for excited delirium, it isn't in there. To date, we have not been aware that there exists uh, sufficient data to validate it as a diagnostic entity. In other words, psychiatrists like Applebaum doubt that excited delirium is even a real condition. He says the symptoms and causes are all kind of vague. Part of my concern about a term like uh, excited delirium is my sense that it's being used as a wastebasket term, which is to say everybody who sort of creates problems and struggles with the police and ends up hurt or dead uh, is thrown into this wastebasket. As a medical condition, excited delirium has only been around for a little over a decade. And one man played an outsized role in defining it. I'm Mark DeBard. Uh, I'm a medical doctor, now officially retired as an emergency physician, although I maintain my uh, status as a professor emeritus of emergency medicine at The Ohio State University here in Columbus, Ohio. 
Dr. DeBard says that back in the 90s, he was working in the emergency room, and he saw people who were agitated, acting bizarre, and physiologically stuck in fight-or-flight mode. Many were on stimulants like cocaine or methamphetamine, and some people died, essentially exerting themselves to death. By the early 2000s, it became obvious uh, that we were seeing more and more cases of this, and I start reading about them all over the country uh, in custody of law enforcement and EMS dying before they get to the hospital. So Dr. DeBard spoke with peers around the country and formed a task force to investigate. In 2009, they issued a white paper through the American College of Emergency Physicians, formally defining excited delirium syndrome and its treatment. You can't talk these people down. You have to intervene medically, usually with sedative medications. It calms the entire body down uh, and it interrupts this feedback loop, uh, allowing their body to return to normal. They landed on ketamine because it worked quickly and had a pretty solid safety record. Dr. DeBard stands by his findings, despite what other doctors say. I wouldn't expect psychiatrists or anesthesiologists to ever see a case. There's no possibility they would ever encounter a case. These cases occur out in the field and they occur in the emergency room. But in the end, the only physicians that see these cases are emergency physicians. We wanted to know how often medics around the country sedate people for supposed excited delirium. So we started in our own state, Colorado, where more than 100 paramedic agencies are allowed to use ketamine like this. We learned that in the last two and a half years, paramedics injected the drug 902 times. We thought those numbers sounded high. Excited delirium is supposed to be rare. So we asked Dr. DeBard how many cases he would expect to see. I came up with the number 57 as the number of expected cases, statistically speaking, for Colorado in those two and a half years. We told Dr. DeBard about the 902 cases Colorado actually had over that time period. That sounds like they had about 15 times more uses of ketamine for excited delirium syndrome uh, than I would have expected. In Colorado, we know how often paramedics use ketamine to sedate people for excited delirium because the state keeps track of that. But many states don't, and we couldn't find any national data. By phone, we asked Dr. DeBart about this. Um, Do you know how many EMS providers across the country are using ketamine for excited delirium? Not right now, I don't. It does seem pretty widespread. That's just the impression. I would agree that it it seems widespread, but I have no data on that. Yeah, yeah. Do you know if there is a universal definition for excited delirium being used by these EMS providers? And then beyond that, is there also universal training? Are they all getting the same education? So I don't know the answer to either one of those. So we started counting ourselves. We found about 30 states across the country that allow paramedics to sedate people for excited delirium. And we know of at least one case where ketamine sedation for excited delirium contributed to a man's death. But until we have national data on how often people are sedated for excited delirium, there's no way to say just how many are being harmed or how often excited delirium is misdiagnosed. And that's another thing we wanted to know from Dr. DeBard. In the case of Elijah McKnight, 
Does DeBard believe that Elijah was suffering from excited delirium? Dr. DeBard agreed to watch the body cam footage. Can you hear it okay? Yes, I can. Dr. DeBard watches as deputies have Elijah handcuffed and pinned to the ground, and a paramedic crouches down to talk to him. I'm with the fire department. Please help me. What's your name? Elijah Shaman, man. One more time. Elijah. Elijah. Sean is my middle name, and my night is my last Okay. He's obviously understanding and answering their questions somewhat rationally. You guys can't give him anything, can you? Dr. DeBard says no. He doesn't see anything even close to excited delirium in Elijah's body cam tape. So, yeah, the big deal on this is uh, uh, they sound like they want to give him ketamine to control his behavior as opposed to treat excited delirium syndrome. So what about Elijah McKnight? What was going on for him that night? What was he feeling? Yeah, freaked out, for sure. I already got tased, and I, was, I just felt like that was going to be the end of it. Like, my life was in their hands. I'm thinking that, like, they kill people all the time and get away with it. I'm about to be one of those victims, so I'm struggling. Elijah is facing two felony assault charges, one for each deputy, along with two misdemeanors for obstruction. Prosecution documents point to excited delirium. They say medics attempted to ask Elijah questions, but he refused to give answers. They also say he was so strong that he kept lifting a deputy off the ground with his leg while restrained. The paramedics on the scene of the ketamine administration, they're, I feel like, giving false information. If they're saying I'm being wildly combative and experiencing excited delirium, they made something up. Because they're like, oh yeah, he's lifting everybody up off the ground. He's the Incredible Hulk. Elijah says he was drunk that night. And he was scared and agitated after being tased. But he doesn't believe he had excited delirium. And if he did, wouldn't that mean he was delirious and facing a medical emergency? If that's the case, it leaves him wondering why prosecutors even charged him at all. Michael DeYuana is a reporter at KUNC Public Radio in Colorado. Ray Solomon was formerly at KUNC, but is now a producer at Lemonada Media. After Michael and Ray's story aired, Colorado passed a law restricting paramedics from using ketamine to sedate people during police confrontations. The state's health department also put together a panel of experts, and they concluded the diagnosis of excited delirium is prone to implicit bias and racism. After he was forcibly sedated, Elijah McKnight received a $115,000 settlement from South Metro Fire Rescue. After the break, we continue looking at stories that question who has power and how it's being used with a look at laws restricting people's right to vote. Some of them have been around for centuries. In early 19th century Missouri, if you poisoned someone, you would lose the right to vote. But if you cut off someone's ears, you would not lose the right to vote. That's next on Reveal. From the Center for Investigative Reporting and PRX, this is Reveal. 
I'm Ike Sreeskandaraja, filling in for Al Letson. Eric Harris is 29 years old, he's from St. Louis, and he said growing up, he didn't put a lot of stock in voting. People in general in, in, in the community that I come from, a lot of their family members are formerly incarcerated people, so they already have the mind frame of my vote is not going to count anyway. Eric's talking about a law in Missouri that takes the right to vote away from people if they are on parole or probation for a felony conviction. I first interviewed Eric in 2020. That's Andrea Henderson. She's a Reveal investigative fellow. I was working on a story about people who couldn't vote in the presidential election because of this law in Missouri, which affects like over 60,000 people. And nationwide, there were more than 5 million people who couldn't vote in the last presidential election because of these kinds of laws. Half of the states in the U.S. don't even have 5 million people total. And Eric was a part of this group that was helping people who were off of probation or parole get their vote back. And the group was also trying to get rid of this law that took their vote away in the first place. Voter restriction laws have been in the spotlight lately. Last year, some 19 states passed these laws. But Andrea says lost in this conversation? Prisoner disenfranchisement. And these laws have been on the books since the founding of our nation. And advocates say they disproportionately target voters of color by design. So we asked Andrea, who's also a reporter at St. Louis Public Radio, to look into the history of prisoner disenfranchisement laws in Missouri. Eric remembers the exact moment he realized his vote was actually worth something. I was working in a law library at Tipton Correctional Facility, and um, that's all I did was read, 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 read. That's all I was doing. Tipton Correctional Facility is about 160 miles west of St. Louis, where Eric was born. I grew up in what we call the west side of St. Louis. The west side of St. Louis is in a part of town that was once home to a black middle class. But then the General Motors plant closed in the 1980s and jobs dried up. By the time Eric was born in the early 1990s, poverty and drugs had settled in. In our neighborhood, you know, the kids jumping off the porch at 12. Wait, what does jumping off the porch mean? You know, getting into trouble, getting into mischief, being a knucklehead. So were you a knucklehead at 14? I was a knucklehead at 12. For the next decade, Eric had a series of run-ins with the law. And at 22, he landed at Tipton for four years. And that brings us back to that law library. When I got there, I was still filing appellate paperwork. Eric was trying to appeal his conviction. And he said, while he was at that law library, he'd also read books on American history and random case laws. Just to be gaining knowledge. Eventually, Eric stumbled on the Missouri Constitution of 1820. And he came across this section that basically said, persons convicted of a felony may be excluded by law from voting. And Eric remembered thinking, why do they want to take my vote away? They're only stripping the vote away to keep power. According to the Missouri Department of Corrections, around 63,000 formerly incarcerated people could not vote in the last presidential election because they were on probation or parole. And Reveal dug into the numbers and found that a quarter of those people were Black. And that's in a state where Black folks make up about 12% of the population. Pippa Holloway 
is the author of Living in Infamy, Felon Disenfranchisement, and the History of American Citizenship. And then I'm a professor of history at the University of Richmond in Richmond, Virginia. Holloway says the early American states got their prisoner disenfranchisement laws from Britain. And that's really the case of Missouri's 1820 Constitution. At that time, Black people couldn't vote. In Missouri, the vast majority of the Black population was enslaved, and certainly across the South, that was the case. So this, at this time, is not about race, or certainly not about denying African Americans the right to vote. But Holloway says those early felon disenfranchisement laws were confusing. So here's an example. In um, early 19th century Missouri, if you poisoned someone, you would lose the right to vote. But if you cut off someone's ears, you would not lose the right to vote. Lawmakers believed cutting off someone's ears could have been an accident, a sort of crime of passion, whereas poisoning someone takes planning. In Kentucky, I found a case in which they said, well, what if a man beats his best friend to death with a croquet mallet because they're playing croquet and he loses and he gets really mad? And they say he shouldn't lose the right to vote for that. And I'm like, can you imagine what it would take to beat someone to death with a croquet mallet? Good Lord. Holloway's bigger point is when laws are complicated and difficult to understand, they can be weaponized. And so a judge that doesn't really remember, is is this a crime you lose the right to vote or not? They're going to say, okay, if a black person does it, they lose the right to vote. If a white person does it, they don't. Basically, vague laws allow for racially biased enforcement. And in 1916, about 100 years after the Missouri Constitution was ratified, this proved true in Missouri. So the 1916 presidential election is hotly contested across the country. The election was during the Great Migration, and millions of African Americans were moving north to escape the horrors of the Jim Crow South. And in St. Louis, the Black population exploded. Democrats are running Woodrow Wilson for re-election. Back then... Most Black voters were not Democrats. They identified as Republicans. It was the party of Lincoln. And Republicans are hoping that the additional influx of African-American voters into Missouri is going to help Republican Charles Evan Hughes win the state of Missouri and possibly the country. So to win, the Democrats launched a campaign to stop Black voters from going to the polls. And they used felon disenfranchisement laws to do it. A few weeks before the election, white Missouri Democrats sent about 20 young attorneys to comb the criminal court records and compile lists of African-American voters who'd been convicted of crimes. About a thousand people ended up on that list, or around 25 percent of the registered black voters in St. Louis. As Election Day approached, the Democrats put out a notice in the local papers. It read, As rapidly as they arrive at the polls, they will be challenged. If they insist on casting their ballots and start to swear in their vote, they'll be arrested and charged at once with perjury. African Americans fleeing the Jim Crow South had experienced intimidation and violence at the polls. They understood that this was not about the list. So basically, it's a threat to African-American voters. Now, what's different in Missouri, though, for these new voters is they've got the Republican Party on their side. The Republicans hired an army of lawyers and told Black voters that if they were harassed at the polls, the party would defend them. So this sets the stage for a very exciting election day that November in 1916. Exciting for white people. Despite the threats, Black men showed up at the polls. Remember, women couldn't vote then. And when men came to vote, they were challenged by these challengers. They say, all right, we're going to look at this list and see if you're on it. 
And whether or not they were, they could still accuse them of being on it, right? Holloway said sometimes the voters shouldn't have been voting. But much more likely, it was just someone with the same name or a similar name, and it was a false accusation. In some precincts, when that happened, the police were there to arrest Black voters. At the end of Election Day, Holloway said there were about 96 Black men who were arrested and accused of voting illegally. After nearly three years on parole, Eric got his right to vote back, just in time for the 2020 presidential election. That's Eric greeting the poll worker at a library in St. Louis. He was gripping a manila folder. In it, his release papers and a letter from the state that read, Restoration of Voting Rights. He showed it to the poll workers. They weren't expecting this. Since Eric was released from Tipton, he's been part of a political awakening taking place in St. Louis. It was sparked by the killing of Michael Brown Jr., and activists who emerged from the Ferguson protests have been leading it. In fact, Eric told me he registered to vote in large part to elect one of those activists. Her name is Cori Bush. Back at the polling center, they can't find Eric on the voter roll. And so they call the Board of Elections. And a couple of phone calls later... Eric gets his ballot. And for the first time in his life, Eric entered a voting booth. And when he came out, he had a little smile on his face. How do I feel? I feel wonderful, actually, because with my vote, I would like to see elected officials bring people like myself to the table where decisions are being made about the people in the community that are mostly affected by it. And Eric's vote helped do that. His candidate, Cori Bush, became the first Black woman to represent Missouri in the U.S. House of Representatives. Reveal fellow and St. Louis public radio reporter Andrea Henderson brought us that story. Today, Eric Harris is a community activist, and he credits getting back the right to vote for putting him on this path. Our lead producer for this week's show is Stan Alcorn. He had help from Stephen Roscone. Queena Kim edited the show. Special thanks to Reveal's Melissa Lewis, Nina Martin, Catherine Moskowski, and St. Louis Public Radio. Victoria Baranetsky is our general counsel. Our production manager is Amy Mustafa. Score and sound design by Jim Briggs and Fernando Arruda. They had help this week from Jess Alvarenga and Catherine Steyer-Martinez. Our digital producer is Sarah Merck. Our theme music is by Camarado Lightning. Support for Reveal is provided by the Reva and David Logan Foundation, the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, the Jonathan Logan Family Foundation, the Ford Foundation, the Heising Simons Foundation, the Hellman Foundation, the Democracy Fund, and the In As Much Foundation. Reveal is a co-production of the Center for Investigative Reporting and PRX. I'm Ike Sreeskandaraja, and as Al Letson usually reminds you here, there's always more to the story. <laughs>